Well, thanks so much for this opportunity to contribute to this very interesting uh, symposium, uh, which I've actually been looking forward to for months. And I'm so sorry that family circumstances mean that I can't be joining you in real time. I hope this pre-record will do, which is very much in the uh, make-do-amend spirit of 2020. I'll be speaking today about two of my great loves, Cistercian monasteries and ghost stories. I aim to show how 12 ghost stories written by a monk of Byland Abbey, Yorkshire, in around 1400 have enormous and hitherto neglected potential for interpreting this internationally important monastery. It's recently been turned into to uh, free to enter site, and I, I think the visiting public really can get something from these stories. I want to show how the stories open up wider questions concerning medieval beliefs about death, commemoration and the afterlife, and how an exploration of these questions and the role of the monasteries in wider society can really bring them a life for modern day audiences. Uh, the next slide, please. But we all have reasons why we've chosen our scholarly specialism, and this man is at least partly responsible for me becoming a medieval art historian. I'm sure you'd have recognised him without the caption as Montague Rhodes James, the great Cambridge medievalist. Now I'd like to claim that I was as precocious as James and it was my reading as a teenager of his apocryphal New Testament edition or his catalogues of illuminations that um, set me on my path. But no, it was his ghost stories for which is most popular to this day and best known to this day, which I first encountered as an impressionable teenager in the early 1980s. But as anyone who's read them will know, these stories were often inspired by medieval themes such as cathedrals and monasteries, choir stalls and tombs, illuminated manuscripts and stained glass windows. They're all very much the stock and trade of my day-to-day -day work today. Um, can I have the next slide, please? Well, I have to be honest, no. It was actually due to his ghost stories, for which he is most famous to this day, which I first encountered as an impressionable 13 or 14 year old one Halloween tide in the early 1980s. But as anyone who has read them will know, James was inspired to write his stories by a number of historical and specifically medieval themes, be it cathedrals and monasteries, choir stalls and tombs, illuminated manuscripts, stained glass windows and ruined Templar preceptories. Um, next slide, please. It was James who first brought to scholarly attention the subject of the, my talk today, the Byland Abbey ghost stories. 
His transcription of them and a brief discussion was published in the English Historical Review in 1922. The stories are written in Latin on end pages in a 12th century manuscript from Byland's library. They date to the turn of the 15th century and James described the language as refreshing. I think that means the Latin was bad. And even a paleographer as talented as James found the handwriting difficult. And looking at the leaf I'm showing here, I think you can understand why. And I'm rather glad it was James who found them and not me, and that I was spared the task of transcribing them. Uh, next slide, please. Almost all the ghost stories are set in the villages, fields and lanes surrounding Byland. It's very much a North Yorkshire collection and the stories are lent authenticity by the writer making comments such as the old people say and, and surnames occur in the stories which were common in the region until modern times. As I said in my introduction, the stories provide a valuable source with which to explain not only the belief systems of the medieval world, but they also provide a prism through which to interpret the life of the Byland monks, their relationship with the outside world, and the art and architecture of the monastery. But before doing any of this, I think we need a little bit more context. Appropriately enough, given the subject of my talk, the monks arrived at Byland and the vigil of the Feast of All Saints in 1177. The monastery soon prospered and at the end of the 12th century was regarded as one of the three shining lights of religion in the north. Now the importance of uh, Byland in the development of Cistercian architecture, indeed early Gothic architecture more widely, has long been recognised. Our current English in heritage uh, interpretation of the site uh, is provided via a guidebook only. There are no site panels, though this will soon change, is by and large focused on the importance of Byland in the development of Cistercian architecture, especially in the 12th and early 13th century. It's argued that Byland's buildings show the vigour of this reforming order. The period after 1300 is given scant attention and is more or less treated as one of decline, culminating the uh, Abbey's suppression in 1538. It's not a view I'd subscribe to, to be honest. The ghost stories currently aren't mentioned at all, and I think that's an important oversight. Uh, could I have the next slide, please? Well, that's partly because the Byland stories are far from being a one-off. Medieval monks were great recorders of ghost stories. Indeed, by the time the anonymous monk scribe Byland penned his tales, there was already a centuries-old tradition of monastic ghost story writing. And the Cistercians excelled at this. Some particularly fine examples were set down in the early 13th century by a German Cistercian, Caesarius of Heisterbach. Now this ghost story recording wasn't simply because the monks enjoyed a pleasing terror, a spine-chilling tale of the supernatural, though I think they may well have done. No, rather the stories get to the heart of medieval belief about death and the afterlife 
the fate of the soul after death and how to secure its safety. Salvation in heaven, the avoidance of hell and the shortening of time in purgatory when, when souls were cleansed of sin. Now, in many respects, the monastic vocation was a selfish calling, a way of securing personal salvation. As the great Cistercian St Bernard of Clairvaux explained, life in a Cistercian monastery was an opportunity to live the angelic life on earth. And the great buildings of Byland need to be interpreted in this context. In the words of the 12th century monastic chronicler William of Malmesbury, the Cistercians provided for their monks the surest road to heaven. But monks and nuns, I should add, weren't guaranteed a place in paradise. They could be tempted by sin. And many a monastic tale of the supernatural tells of the tormented souls of erring religious returning after death to make good for an unconfessed sin or to request pious per, uh, services such as prayer and masses. Indeed, one of the Byland stories features the spirit of a lay brother of Revo and another the tormented soul of a canon of the nearby Augustinian monastery at Newburgh Priory. Uh, next slide, please. The ghost stories can also be used to explain the place of the monasteries in wider society. Why did nobles like Byland's founder, Roger de Mowbray, invest so heavily in religious houses? Well, the answer is that they'd often done horrible, horrible, violent deeds. And as a consequence of this sin, they feared for the everlasting safety of their souls. Now, the Gok stories also show the efficacy of prayer, and specifically monkish prayer, for the release of souls from the pains of purgatory. In many monastic ghost stories, the restless spirits want nothing more than the saying of prayers or commemorative masses for their souls. And Byland's Cartulary, a summary of its charters detailing its landed endowment, include multiple grants of land stating that these were made for the health of the soul of the abbey's benefactor. Well into the 16th century the monastery was receiving bequests for spiritual services, especially the saying of private requiem masses. Now all of this helps explain the cathedral-like size of the church of Byland. When it was first constructed it was the largest Cistercian church in England and it's multiple altars which you can see along the east end and uh, there in the transepts and also in the nave were used by the monks for the saying of these private requiems, masses for the soul of the abbey's benefactors. And unlike um, uh, is often thought, the monks occupied a very, very important role in the religious life of northern society until the very moment of its suppression. Membership of the Abbey's confraternity or lay brotherhood was valued by middling sorts and aristocrats into the 16th century. And the Abbey receives numerous bequests in the 16th century also for the saying of masses. Uh, next slide, please. 
Well, as I've said, the majority of the ghosts in the Byland Tales want nothing more than pious services so their souls can rest in peace. But one of the Byland Spectres is a supernatural being of another sort. He's a revenant, one of the restless dead. He takes solid bodily form. He neither seeks nor is appeased by pious services, and the monks have no option but to annihilate his evil remains. Indeed, it's been argued that this corporeal ghost is the inspiration for several of the ghosts in uh, James's supernatural tales. And the story concerns one James Tankley. He's a local clergyman who was buried before the entrance to the chapter house at Byland. That's a very prominent and prestigious place to be buried indeed, and it's normally reserved, a location normally reserved for important people. Now, Tankley didn't deserve this privilege, rising at night and wandering the dales, ultimately gouging out the eye of his former concubine. Well, it's a chilling tale, but it also enables me to discuss how burial within the precincts of a Cistercian monastery, indeed any monastery, was a much sought-after privilege. And the graves of benefactors and monks were strategically located so as to maximise on the intercessory opportunities afforded by the daily liturgical life of the monks, such as the saying of masses, the singing of the office, office and processions. Uh, thank you. Next slide, please. Uh, night stairs from the dormitory to sing the night office of matins. And I also imagine that many of the visitors will be surprised to learn that Byland had its own saint, well, second tier saint, a Beatus, the Blessed Roger, who had led his community to Byland and who was associated with the miracle on the deathbed of the great northern Cistercian saint Aylred of Rivo. Roger's feast was celebrated by the Cistercians on the 30th of March, and perhaps his remains and relics were enshrined in the monastery's uh, chapter house, uh, likely also the place for a cenotaph for the monastery's founder, uh, Roger de Mowbray. Uh, could I have the next slide, please? The stories also show how well integrated the Byland monks were into the religious mainstream of the late Middle Ages, of their religious vitality. In several of the stories, the holy name of Jesus, um, the IHS or YHS monogram on the left of the side, who is its most common medieval um, uh, iconographic depiction, is evoked, or the wounds of Christ shown there on the right. Now, both were emerging cults at this time, and their popularity in uh, Northern England was partly attributable to the role the Cistercians played in their early development and dissemination. Another of the stories concerns a Northerner who made the pilgrimage to the shrine of St James of Compostela in Northern Spain, and that was one of the greatest of all pilgrimage destinations in the late Middle Ages, and it gives an idea that people were going on pilgrimage to, not just it was a kind of holiday, but to secure their spiritual salvation. 
In summary, I think they show that the late medieval church was truly international. It was dynamic and it was vibrant, and that applies to Byland Abbey too. Uh, next slide, please. Well, I'll conclude by talking about the suppression. Well into the 1530s, local people were still interesting the Byland monks with the salvation of their souls. But the abbey, like monasteries across the land, fell victim to Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, Byland's end coming in 1538. But the ghost stories, or more specifically the manuscript containing them, provide a hook to discuss these dramatic events and show that the monks were not partic passive participants. Now, this is shown by the extraordinary efforts of the last prior of Byland to preserve intact his monastery's library, and this has parallels of other uh, northern religious houses, such as Monk Breton, uh, Barnsley and Kirkstall, Another evidence shows that this wasn't because the monks were doing this for personal profit. They hoped their monasteries would come back one day. And this became a reality for um, six monasteries in and around London during the reign of the Catholic Queen Mary. Well, the monks of Roach Abbey, for instance, coalesced as a community. So did those of Rufford during Mary's reign. And a monk possibly of Fountains Abbey copied out at the back of a missile he'd saved from his monastery prayers for Mary's successful pregnancy. But it wasn't to be. Mary died childless in 1558 and was succeeded by her Protestant half-sister, and the belief systems of Elizabeth Church were very different from those of the Middle Ages. There's no purgatory, there's no prayers for the dead, and good works have no role in salvation, secured by faith alone. But from foundation to disillusion, the Byland ghost stories and the dead, holy and otherwise, really do bring to life this internationally important monastery. And I'll be exploring all the themes I talked about in much more detail in a podcast I recorded for the English Heritage website, which maintaining M.R. James' ghost stories, the Christmas tradition, will be released any time around now, I think. But please do contact me if you've any thoughts or questions what I've been talking about today. Thanks again for listening to me, and I'm so sorry I can't be with you in person. And best of luck for what promises to be a remarkably interesting event. Thank you so much.